Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us on the show today is our wonderful friend, Brett King. And welcome back to the show, Brett. And congrats on your new book with Dr. Richard Petty. Thank you. It's great to, it's always fun to do anything with you guys. So. Well, it's always fun to chat with you. I would love to have to do this in, in person, but you know, here we are. You're the only one who's traveling around the world. Um, speaking of traveling, in a recent Cybos TV, you talked about four challenges that are facing our society today. And in your new book, Techno-Socialism, you said these four stresses are converging to produce acute long-term economic uncertainty that will continue to threaten social cohesion. That was a mouthful. Can you talk us through what these stresses are and, and exactly how did the storyline of the book came about? Wow. Um, okay. So the four stresses I talk about, um, or the, the four crises, if you like, um, the uh, pandemic that we have just, we are still going through, um, but is likely not going to be the last pandemic we face over the next 30 years. And we can dive into that if you want. Secondly, um, the gross inequality. Um, Thomas Piketty, the French economist, says of the US economy um, that has the highest inequality of any nation at any time throughout history. So, um, But it's not just the US that has this problem, this disparity between the rich and the poor. Uh, thirdly, um, the uh, obvious emergence of artificial intelligence, high-scale automation at a national level or city level, which is going to really affect the way work um, uh, holds its place in our society and, you know, large-scale techno unemployment and so forth. And lastly, um, and, and most importantly, um, how we adapt to climate change. So all of these crises that we are coming together over the next 20 to 30 years to impact humanity, humanity has never faced this intensity of, uh, you know, um, problems at a societal level in terms of how humans will adapt to these challenges. So when I talk about economic uncertainty, the reason economic uncertainty and social cohesion go together well is when you have this level of economic certainty in history, we have revolution. And so we have to make a choice. Either we, with purpose, reframe the way we think about economics, politics, and um, you know, uh, society's organizing principles, or revolution will bring about the change that we, we need to do. So um, this book really was about um, how we adapt to these changes at a societal level and what we can learn from the past and, you know, and, and what are our choices or options. So let's, let's get into that. Um, for, for our listeners, again, the new book by Brett King is called The Rise of Techno-Socialism, How Inequality, AI, and Climate Will Usher in a New World. So in the preface, you spoke about the rise of a technology-driven collective social consciousness and purpose. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how you define the term techno-socialism? What are some examples of it? So I also say in, in the preface that it's not really about politics. Um, this is more, uh, the, the book is more a, a book about the philosophy of humanity. What is the purpose of humanity? And, you know, and are we organizing for that 
sort of philosophical future. Um, so, you know, like you can look at Aristotle. Aristotle said the purpose of humanity was to thrive, um, you know, but um, we can own, you know, Aristotle concluded, as have many others, that we can only thrive when we work together as a species. So when you look at the most successful um, you know, periods of human history, it's where there's high level of cooperation, um, you know, at, at a societal level. So think about the Apollo space program, um, you know, building the Great Wall of China, the Human Genome Project, or even most recently, the creation of the uh, COVID vaccines. Um, you know, these are times when humanity has come together with purpose and we've achieved incredible things. But Philosophically, the real problem we have right now is the way we think about the economy and the way we think about, um, you know, how economy should work. So capitalism is the primary doctrine globally, um, but capitalism is based on competition. Um, competition with each other at a corporation level, at a market level, at a, a national level. Um, and that co cooperation, sorry, that competition rather, is suboptimal from the purpose of solving the sort of problems that humanity is going to face. It's no good having artificial intelligence regulation in one market, right? We need a global take on that. It's no good having a national climate change policy if everyone else is not acting in accord with, with those principles. We need global coordinated action. Um, the good news is that if we apply artificial intelligence and the advances we're having in technology, then we can bring about incredible advances in resource allocation, reducing the cost of government and reducing the cost of basic services to humanity so that the economy really becomes aligned with the purpose of caring for citizens first and foremost, rather than looking after markets and corporations as a primary goal. I like the part about caring for citizens. That is so important, something that we tend to forget as, as a business and as a society nowadays, especially as divided as we are. Um, leading to that, the quote that you use in that first chapter is one from Thomas Jefferson. I always like to look at quotes that people use in books. It tells the story because that's always intentional, what you put and where you put it. Mm. So this quote for our listeners, it says, the purpose of government is to enable the people of a nation to live in safety and happiness. Government exists for the interest of the governed and not for the governors. It goes back to caring for everyone. Tell us a little bit behind the scene. Why do you quote Thomas Jefferson? And more importantly, why this particular quote and, and why you choose to put him in the front? Um, yeah, good question. Well, historically, you know, the United States, obviously, we cite the US as the world's most successful economy in history. But that's not the current US economy. Um, this is the post Second World War economy. Um, and today, when we look at the challenges that we face, um, we're often we of, of obviously have some politically political ideology differences in the United States that in terms of setting policy are pretty hard to navigate. 
So part of the reason for choosing um, you know, Thomas Jefferson is that he's respected by both sides in general in respect to his philosophical thoughts about governance and so forth. But we've forgotten a lot of the things that Thomas Jefferson and you know the founding fathers of the nations put as sort of core ob objectives or core principles for the US. One that I found extremely interesting is Thomas Jefferson didn't believe um, that everyone should have the right to vote. Um, unless it was backed by a free public education system. You know, he felt very strongly about that because he said that good uh, participation in government from citizenry is dependent on their level of education, their ability to have a meaningful conversation. This is something also that Aristotle taught. So again, philosophically, um, this is very important. If we're going to have societies that function well for citizens, then it needs to be based on, um, you know, a, a participation uh, th that is informed, um, not just, hey, I'm a citizen, so therefore I have, have the right to vote. So that's a bit um, controversial in today's world where we often talk about voting rights and things like that. But it does come back a little bit to how we form consensus and how we get good representative governance. Um, and that's something that you know, we did try to address in the book as well. You, you talk a lot also uh, in this context about the prevalence of economic inequality and the socioeconomic impact of money within our predominant Western economic systems. And, and you rightly point out that there's this gap that has always sort of existed between rich and poor throughout history. Um, this shifts over time, depends on politics, big events, pandemic sort of impacted that a little bit. Um, while certain economies like China and India have started to grow their middle class out significantly, is, is it really time to, to bid farewell to Adam Smith, uh, at least for us in the West? And, you know, we're doing something wrong because the billionaires are getting more rich and the middle class is getting more squeezed. What's going on? I mean, what, what can we do to change this? Again, this is where the focus on economic growth, GDP is a measure, and the share price is really doing us no favors. Um, you know, 90% of uh, US shares are owned by the top 10%. Um, you know, uh, during the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires surpassed $10 trillion for the first time in the United States. What that means is the top 1% own more than the bottom 90%, um, you know, and 70% of the middle class. So this is, um, you know, these numbers are pretty shocking in respect to just or effectiveness of the economy. The economy is just not effective for the bulk of the population in the United States. But when you look historically why that is, you know, um, we, we know that one of the reasons the second, you know, the post-Second World War US economy was so phenomenally successful is it was the fastest middle class growth uh, uh, that we've ever seen in history. Um, it had a very good uh, distribution of wealth in terms of bell curve distribution. And that wealth that was distributed evenly across, um, you know, the population meant that consumption was at an all-time high and, you know, it resulted in an economy that created 40% of the world's global output. I mean, you know, incredible economy. But in the 1980s, late 1970s and early 1980s, we saw a, a systemic attack on that 
very like very uh, uh, good wealth uh, wealth curve distribution. So in the UK and the US, you have attack on trade unions and collective bargaining. Why this is really critical is this basically means since the 1980s that wage growth for the middle and lower classes has been stagnant. Right, as a result of the loss of collective bargaining and reducing union power. And in the 1980s, we also had Bill Clinton come along and deregulate financial services, which allows more of the wealth capture uh, through the financial system. And, uh, you know, that was only available again to, um, you know, the, the wealthiest portions of the society back in those days. So you play that out since 1980, over the next 40 years, you have stagnant wage growth, you have a shrinking middle class, you have the gap between the rich and the poor opening up. It is a systemic uh, issue in terms of the economy. So you have to ask the question, um, you know, how do we measure the success of an economy? Um, because, you know, we, we think back to the days when the US was the greatest economy in the world and we see China now growing. China is going to surpass the US shortly as the largest economy in the world. By the end of this decade, they'll have 25% of the world's middle class. So their middle class is growing. Exactly the sort of things we saw from, from the US post-World War II. What's the difference? Well, um, the US economy favours market growth, stock prices and GDP growth as the major metrics of success for the economy. But if you, if you were to ask philosophically what should the economy achieve for its nation, then first and foremost, shouldn't it be the health, happiness and liberty of its citizens? If you measure the US economy by that measure, then it's demonstrably failed over the last 40 years. So this is the philosophical question. What is the economy for? Is it for creating profit and GDP growth? Or should it first and foremost be designed to look after the needs of the citizens, to ensure the health and happiness of the citizens, and then secondarily to support growth at a, at a GDP market level? Yeah, I, I think I don't want to speak for Brad, but I, I think I have a hunch on where we think it needs to be and who it needs to work for. And I think that's also why a lot of the themes that you wrote, Brad, in this book resonates with us. Um, you know, talking about challenges facing the world today, talking about inequality, talking about um, wealth distribution or what needs to happen. And in there, you eloquently wrote, people want to be productive, but they also need to feel valued and to believe that their hopes and aspirations have some validity. And if large numbers of people are without jobs, without purpose, and without the prospect of personal fulfillment, but are living in a stratified society where they see the dreams and aspirations of only a few being realized, then those people naturally feel frustrated and angry. Now, I'm not going to point to a specific incident that may or may not have happened this year in the United States, but it almost feels like you foretold what happened in D.C. And in many ways, even beyond that, we have witnessed a lot of people not being happy, right, with what's yeah. happening. Um, we have seen workers being exploited. What role do you think, going back to your previous point, banking industry, financial services, if you were to talk to an executive from a big bank, um, which you often do, what would you tell them what role they should play 
and addressing all of these challenges that you raised in the book? Yeah, well, I think b banks obviously make up a core part of sort of economic framework. Um, and what we do know is that financial inclusion is a critical piece of um, the ability for to, to be, um, you know, financially stable or financially healthy in the long term. And so this is a core element. Um, again, the United States has not really dramatically improved financial inclusion over the last 30, 40 years. Um, we have about 20% of US households that are underbanked, um, and we have not made significant progress on that. China, on the other hand, has taken um, you know all of its po population that was in extreme poverty, earning less than two dollars a day, and lifted them out of that category. And so, you know, there's been a broad social commitment to that. So then the question is, well, how can banks help? Um, and when we you know we look at the efforts at financial inclusion in the past, like the Community Reinvestment Act in in the U.S., it was designed for a different time. This was a, a law put in place in 1977, and the assumption was that you would you would need a branch in these poor neighborhoods to um, ensure financial inclusion. Well, India tried that you know to get their population banked, and it just didn't work two things are really needed to resolve access to financial services. One is access to an identity, a form of identity. Um, you know, uh, uh, at l uh, approximately half of the US population doesn't have a passport, and we've got about a quarter of the population that doesn't have a driver's license. And so those lack of identity documents are really critical issues in respect to things like access to financial services, and as we've seen more recently, um, you know, the ability to vote. So the need for a national identity scheme that includes the population is going to be ever more critical as the digital services layer of the 21st century requires identity for access to everything from telemedicine to education through to banking and financial services. National identity should be a priority. National identity infrastructure should be a priority for the US to, to solve those problems. And banks have a huge role in, in pushing for this and not insisting that your social security number and your mother's maiden name and a signature are still relevant forms of, of identity. The rest of the world has sort of figured this out or is figuring this out, um, you know, China in particular. Um, the US is sort of sticking to these very old views of financial inclusion and identity, and I think the banks should do more for that. Secondly, Banks have to demonstrate they're good corporate citizens. Increasingly, we see pressure on brands around the world. Um, recently in the UK, for example, we've seen mass protests uh, against uh, Barclays and HSBC um, because of their support for fossil fuel companies. And I think we need to demand uh, that all corporations in the US, not just banks and financial institutions, are good corporate citizens and add, add to the whole and are not um, engaged in activities that make things worse. Yeah, we just saw yesterday Goldman Sachs says they're not going to stop funding uh, and, and providing capital to companies that uh, use fossil fuels. And it's it, just, a bad I, move. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, anyway, so it, it, along those lines and the lessons that we can learn um, from other cultures and what's happening, not just with financial inclusion, but just in terms of the economics of the future. A lot of the things that China and other countries are deploying today are from the playbook of what you know the U.S. learned within the last hundred years. And 
that's what's crazy to me is that yeah. so much of you know what is uh, demonized as socialism really came from the U.S. and and you know, the type of programs that we have for people's retirement and for healthcare and all these other pieces came from elements of the U.S. and workers' rights and unionization and all of these things and uh, it's just killing me. When, well, when the GI Bill, the national highway system, absolutely. all of, of these things would be called socialism today, but they built the core infrastructure that enabled um, you know, the US economy to become the largest economy in the world. You can't have that sort of economic growth or economic stability without strong investment in infrastructure. Here we are arguing mm -hmm. about a one point, you know, it was 3.6 or 3.5 it, it was trillion. the right size. Now it's 1.6 trillion. China is investing $8 trillion every five years in infrastructure right now. So, and you could yeah. see it just being on the ground. Um, yeah. And I know you've lived, you know, all around the world. And obviously, we've traveled other than the last couple of years a lot around the world. And you just see it. You physically see yeah. it from the airport to the downtowns to, you know, the skyscrapers in the sky. Yeah. So, so and it's not just infrastructure, too, right? You know, we have crumbling bridges and, and, ro and <laughs> totally. roads, but even water, right? So many places in the United States do not have access to clean water because the pipes are yeah. And here we are arguing whether or not we can afford to replace the pipes. Yeah, really? we gotta, Seriously? We got to fix all the stuff from our last round of investments, you know, 100 years ago almost. All right. So, so getting into those economics, though, it almost seems like you're making this argument that there's ways to find money um, that, you know, rather than doing the centralized planning and going back to what the U.S. did really well and what China now is doing well, um, there's this idea that there's more global cooperation uh, in terms of Unified global governance of technology, its impact on society, standards around taxation, even a, a, a place in, in your chapters about how AI and, and robots could, and, and other forms of automation could also be taxed, which yes. if, if there's a way to find this money, let's find it. Yeah. Um, because we need to fight more collectively to come back to the impact of not just climate change, but all the other ills of society. And we could do this. But can you walk us through some of those ideas about what you explored in the book? There's a lot in there. Um, you know, the first principle is that automation, um, you know, at a, at a national level, um, combined with the need to invest in infrastructure for modernizing infrastructure for the 21st century and for climate resilience, um, that the combination of those things will bring us to a point where we can finally get to v small, very efficient um, resource allocation mechanisms for government. So we cut out the bureaucracy. A lot of the bureaucracy we have in governments around the world is just human process. It's policies and processes that have been put in place 100 years ago, as you said. And we have the technology to dramatically improve those. Um, you know, for example, you know, just confirming your identity with a government department accurately, you know, um, with identity reform, we can fix that. Um, you know, we looked at smart cities like Shenzhen and the way they uh, manage their roads. So by, you know, they've been increasing the population of vehicles on the road, but reducing traffic and wait times and, uh, um, you know, through smarter systems. They don't have patrol vehicles doing stops on, um, you know, uh, where there's risk of you being pulled out of the car and shot, you know, in the United States. They just don't do that unless there's a, a life-threatening situation or an accident um, because people can be billed for fines for, um, you know, infractions against the law just through their the mobile phone network um, using, you know, facial recognition and other uh, image, image recognition 
image recognition technology. So there are, there are those elements um, from a perspective of making government massively more efficient. Like in the book, we talk about how by the middle of next century, uh, sorry, middle of next decade, 2035, that we could reduce the cost of universal healthcare in the United States by 70%. We could provide healthcare to the entire US population at 30% of the current healthcare costs. But it requires massive rethinking in terms of the, the, the structuring and approach of that. So when you, when you look at the global elements, we've gone for some very big picture stuff in terms of how we pay for this. A global flat corporate tax rate, which you know, we, is being talked about today, but that um, eliminates people using jurisdictions to reduce their corporate tax. Secondly, forgiveness of all national debt. As long as that debt is committed over the next 30 years to climate mitigation, inequality and social issues. Um, you know, so these are very, very big picture ideas, but um, something um, you know, that we could, I think, all get behind. Secondly, um, or thirdly, rather, the, um, the issue of regulation is that when we look at things like financial crime or look at artificial intelligence, that having localized regulation is no longer effective. Um, it, you know, we, we stop about 1% of money laundering globally, despite the fact we spend hundreds of billions of dollars on that activity each year. A lot of the fraud comes within from within banks themselves. Um, but data sharing uh, is really the only way we're gonna stop financial crime, you know, ransomware attacks and things like that in the future as global regulatory bodies. And the same needs to be uh, done for, um, for the integration of artificial intelligence in society. And, and like your point about data sharing and how we need to move beyond the region, the borders, and, and collaborate more together, because it feels like in our world today, that's going in the opposite direction, right? Yeah. Countries are, are erecting digital walls. They are limiting where the data can go. Um, and and it's just not going the way we need to. But to piggyback, piggyback on the last point that you just talked about, regulation, there has been a lot of talk lately um, about big tech and regulation and, and whether or not they have gotten too big to fail. And what role should regulation play? So if we look at the approaches from different regions, from China to EU to the US, the approaches are vastly different. Um, some leave it to the market and some would want to do things out of what is more beneficial to consumers and their citizens. How do you see, see things play out in the next few years? Well, the big challenge is really going to be with artificial intelligence. We can see already that AI has the potential to incorporate many of the biases that we have in the existing system. So that's obviously a, a core problem. But the fact that the only economy in the world today that has any sort of regulation around the ethical operation of artificial intelligence being China is sort of astounding, right? Um, because AI is already impacting large portions of society. Now, look, look, we have Tesla with their full self-driving uh, module, you know, beta in beta right now being being trialed. That's just one small area where artificial intelligence is going to impact the economy, and we don't have a central body for managing 
the, this implementation of AI from an ethical perspective in society right now. Yes, we have the uh, the the DMV and the National Transportation, um, what, are, what do they call it, the uh, NTHSA, um, you know, that... The safety is, board. Yeah, the safety board that has some control over that specific use of AI. But AI is going to touch every level of society and we need to have in, in in some form, some basic form of regulation that determines what is a safe operating um, parameters of and ethical operating parameters of AI in society. And, and we need to do this not just because criminals are using artificial intelligence, um, but because the potential for this to worsen the inequality gap is, again, one of the significant issues be between AI. You know, AI is going to displace people from work. And so, um, you know, what do you do in respect to that? Well, you know, you've got a few options. You could say this is, uh, you know, we have to ban AI so they don't take human jobs. So that you know, could be one course that some jurisdictions go down. Not necessarily, I, I don't think that's the best thing for humanity, but that's a choice. Um, you can say, let the free market sort it out. Well, in, if, if you let the free market sort it out, you're going to have mass unemployment. You know, you could end up with 40% youth unemployment. That's going to create revolution, social unrest. It's not a viable outcome. So in, but, you know, the, the other options that are available to us are either we say, for every job that you eliminate, every human you eliminate from your process by, you know, deploying artificial intelligence or some form of automation, you now have a responsibility to ensure that that human is retrained for another job or, you know, um, invest in job programs that are going to help um, mitigate the, uh, the pressure of, of that loss of job because of automation. And the wealth that will be created um, as a result of this level of automation is it is going to be again immense so it's not like we're not going to have enough money to do this um but we just need to have the intent as a society to ensure that as artificial intelligence comes into society that you know the the worse effects of it are mitigated but we don't do this as a as a society over the last 300 years as we've looked at the introduction of all these different technologies that have come into play you know the telegraph line the uh, the combustion engine you know the railway you know the iphone whatever you want to the internet whatever you want to think about we tend to um you know first uh, cheer on the the technology because it's going to create profits and then secondly worry about the impact of it after it's hit but we can't do that with artificial intelligence in climate change. We have to start planning because this is a 30-year cycle that's going to be so disruptive to society. If we just let it happen, it's just simply going to result in billions of needless deaths. And that's what it comes down to. If we don't plan this out and we just let it happen, people are going to die. And um, that's, that's just untenable situation. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there, there's a lot in the book that is is concerning, you know, about the future. And, and meanwhile, in the U.S., you know, we get Facebook trying to rename itself to try to, you know, resuscitate its reputation somehow. Um, we're looking at this the wrong way, I think. And there's a lot of things, you know, that we could look at in terms of these topics and think about a more dystopian future, you know, controlled by smaller and smaller circles of data in our lives and 
every device is going to be peering in and all that we do in the ether that we leave are going to be somehow sort of pinned against us. And, and to your point, billions of people could die. Um, but it seems like you, you take a different angle on these things. You take a, a little bit more utopian vision of what might come and what your vision of things will come. So tell us you know, where that hope comes from as an author, as a technologist, and as a human being. Where does that come from? You know, th this really comes back to why I wrote this book um, is, you know, I, I, I realize I have, uh, you know, I have the realization that I've got more days behind me than ahead of me. And, you know, I want to make a contribution to society that's meaningful. And I am optimistic about the potential use of technology and how it can solve the world's problems. But the things that will prevent us from using technology to do that tend to be these ideologies that we have. Um, and they're, they're, they're not logical, they're inefficient, um, they create division. And I mean, we've only got one planet. Um, we are a collective species, you know, uh, humanity is a family, we're all brothers and sisters. And the moment we stop competing against each other, the moment we stop thinking that one of us is better than another one of us because of the patch of dirt we were born on or, you know, the uh, the language we speak or the economic philosophy we have or the colour of our skin, the moment we stop thinking like that, competing with each other, humanity has the capability to reach its optimal potential. But until we do that, um, we're essentially just biting off our nose to spite our face. You know, it's, it's, and so that's really what I see. You know, we examine four outcomes, Brad, in terms of the potential outcomes and inclusiveness and collective um, views of humanity are so critical to our future in respect to having a positive outcome for humanity and the planet as a whole. The more we are individual, um, you know, we emphasize individual rights, um, you know, at the, at the um, you know, the, the, I can't think of the word right now, but it, the impact of, of the rights of people collectively. Um, and, and the more that we emphasize, you know, sort of the, the, the traditional views of capitalism and creation of wealth and so forth um, a, as the most important features of our economy, the more we're going to create this economically, you know, socially divided outcomes. So the, of the four outcomes, we have um, two that are based on sort of chaotic futures. This is where either we reject technology because of its impact to employment, or we just wait too long to uh, um, resolve the issues around climate and inequality. Um, and this throws us into chaos for the next 30 to 50 years. Um, and so this is the two scenarios we called Ladistan, rejection of technology, or Faldistan, large sections of the, the world with failed states because they can't govern anymore because of the chaos uh, as a result of inequality and climate change and AI, right? But the two um, more uh, positive outcomes in terms of the future come down to just this issue of inclusiveness. So if we have a positive outcome as a result of technology, but it's limited by 
who can afford things like longevity treatments that extend their lifespan or access to technologies that, um, you know, uh, or access to food and access to technologies that make them live healthier lives, things like that. If that's based on the current system of inequality, then you just worsen the, the inequality gap gets baked in for the next, you know, century. Um, but that means that essentially we're just writing off at least a billion people that will be eco refugees and and victims of you know climate and and um, you know uh, food scarcity and things like that and just saying it's not our problem, and that is in my view unconscionable. And so we have the resources, we have ample resources to fix these problems for the planet. We just need the intent, and so this is where the organising principles are critical, because right now. At, we organize ourselves economically based on this view of um, you know market dominance and you know stock market price and GDP and all of these things. We don't organize ourselves around what's best for the human race. you know and that is crazy. So as a techno optimist, I just want to draw attention to the fact that if you look at any other outcome other than a collective view of humanity and getting together to solve these problems on a global basis, any other outcome is suboptimal. And so, um, you know, that's where it basically comes down to is if we want the best future for humanity, then yeah, the technology will help us get there, but it's based on a collective view of how we make everyone's lives better that's really going to be the best thing we can do. I know maybe it's, um, you know, idealistic, but um, th that's, they're the choices. We have four potential futures and only one of them is optimal. Yeah, I, I think we would share in that optimism. I mean, Beyond Good was all about, you know, showcasing companies that had the broader community. Uh, that's, the, pro the problem is the reality sometimes uh, gets in the way of that optimism. And you're right, um, which is why I wanted to draw attention to the fact that the, the reality is the system isn't working, right? The gross inequality is one measure, but we look at protests that have occurred in the last 20 years. And, you know, the one thing, like we actually, I had researchers go through and look at newspapers um, over the last 20 years and, and news uh, sites, news properties, covering every protest that has occurred in the last 20 years in every country. And what we compiled is then the data of all of these different protests uh, from around the world and saw that the number of protests in the last 20 years compared with the last 50 year average of the 20th century has increased, has doubled, right? The number of protests. So that's already an indicator of the fact that we have less stability in the political systems because people aren't happy. But then look at the number of participants. The number of participants in those protests increased 1,000%, tenfold increase. And so this is the economic uncertainty we have created as a result of the failed system that we're running with right now. It's not going to get any better. We don't get to a situation where those people stop protesting because suddenly they're happy. The economic uncertainty that's being created by these rolling events require us to think very differently about our organizing principles around society or it's simply, you know, society will simply collapse. So when you think of it that way, there really isn't a choice. Mm -hmm.
it isn't a choice and and any other outcomes as you say it's not acceptable not because we cannot afford it it's because we are not doing the right things at the right time we're not taking the actions when we need to and we don't have another plan so we need to go we don't have another planet right no planet no but um you know that's a that's a very um it's a very interesting point you raise um theo about we can't you know about the question about whether we can afford it um, you know, I, I mean, if people want a sort of another glimpse into this, read The Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. It's a great book that talks about how we might deal with this sort of dramatic climate change issue. But at a certain point, when you have 570 coastal cities inundated by sea rise, there comes a certain point where the question of who's going to pay for it is no longer important because you have to do it. There's this, you know, the, the economic cost of not doing it is just simply too great. Um, and we are very close to that point right now. You know, um, it's, it's going to emerge. And at some point when global insurance industries start collapsing or they refuse to insure, um, you know, national infrastructure, for example, because it's not climate resilient. I mean, we are talking about, um, you know, a collapse of the current economic system. So whether or not you believe in this and you say who's going to pay for it the reality is at some point in the future this system will collapse unless we commit to these longer term plans in terms of you know developing society in a different way and and that is exactly the the line and the dots that you need to help them draw because too often and there are just way too many people who say this does not concern me in banks and it does this does not concern me in financial services oh yes it does when when things start collapsing like dominoes it will it's just a matter of time so before we let you go mr king can you tell our listeners where they can pick up the book and with haste absolutely so we've got uh just over three weeks now before the book is released. So please go to amazon.com or barnesandnoble.com, um, you know, uh, the US sites to order the book uh, for now. Um, you can also go to riseoftechnosocialism.com, which is our website. You'll find more information about the book. Um, you know, you'll see our tra video trailer we've created and some of the key topics that we're very concerned about uh, in, in the book there. Um, but you know, yeah, um, and as I say, wherever good books are sold, right? Um, yes. You should see it in the Hudson uh, airports uh, over Christmas as well, hopefully. So if you are traveling over Christmas, you'd be able to pick it up in some of the airports. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Brett. And for the rest of you, thank you for joining us today for another episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you all next week.